Hello and welcome. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to the Hybrid Podcast. Uh, this week we just have a recast for you today of the excellent episode we did with Greg Slater on nutritional periodization. So if you haven't listened to that before, um, definitely listen to it now because there's some unbelievable nuggets of information in there and Greg is incredibly eloquent at uh, putting them across and making it very easy to understand what you need to do. Um, the only announcement we have is hybrid games on the 7th of December. Um, so we're all very much looking forward to that. So enter your team on the website. doesn't matter if you enter as an individual or um, if you've got your team of four already together. Um, either way, there's going to be uh, some single players floating around uh, to join some teams together on the day. Uh, but that should be an excellent day. So yeah, just for now, enjoy the episode and speak to you soon. So it is my pleasure to introduce Greg Slater to the What a Terrible Idea podcast. Hello, Greg. How you doing, gents? You all right? We're all good, Ta. All good. So, first question, going to try and trip you up straight away. What's your favourite dinosaur, Greg? Don't have any. Dinosaurs are shit. Right, uh, cut the podcast. He's a dickhead. <laughs> Get him off. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure we can go further with this. Podcast. You don't like dinosaurs. No, come on, we, we don't like care about giant lizards that kill things. No, yeah, I, I, I get. I know. I get from like an evolutionary perspective that unbelievable, but it's just not something that's ever really my okay, imagination or interest. Well, God, be honest, chance. Come on, be realistic now. Do you what like the ones that fly, <laughs> or the ones that swim? Or the ones that walk on the land. Are you one of those Facebook Facebook quizzes? <laughs> what dinosaur are you? Click here to find out. Create, create a flow chart to, to find out what, Greg, what dinosaur Greg if is. I, if I absolutely had to give an answer, I would say I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Okay, Spinosaurus. Great answer. <laughs> flying <laughs> ones. The flying ones. That's fine, Greg. Everyone's entitled to an opinion. <laughs> Right, well, now that you've ruined my day, let's do some <laughs> podcasting, shall we? Um, we always start with the fact of the day. So what have you got? I'm assuming it's not about dinosaurs. Disappointing. Hopefully <laughs> I can redeem myself here. So um, I was just saying, so if, you've, if you haven't read the book by Bill Bryson called A Short History of Nearly Anything, then it's unbelievable. Like, um, just for a brief history of basically the world and how it developed or whatever. So I've got a couple. So the first one is that if um, to our Earth's core, it's about three and a half thousand miles, right? And if we dug a well um, and we dropped a brick from the top of the surface to get to the core, it would take about 45 minutes due to changes in air pressure and, and gravity and things like that. Now, that gives you a... a perspective on how small we are now consider that of one of the uh, potential uh, galaxies that holds other life the nearest one is probably 200 light years away so even if that we are not the only people that are alive in this earth or in this universe the, the chances of them looking at us and seeing us if you were to wave at them now they wouldn't see us for 200 years so even if there is extraterrestrial life and they can see us they'd be looking at Earth from 200 years ago. They wouldn't be seeing us now. They'd be seeing the French Revolution. They'd be seeing the 1800s, which I think is absolutely incredible. So does that count as a fact? Definitely counts as an interesting fact, for sure. That's a very interesting fact. Um, although, are there dinosaurs in that book? There are. I'm looking forward to skipping it, mate. <laughs> That's an excellent fact. Yeah, no, thinking about like how massive the universe is and how crazy all that sort of shit is is just like literally one of my favorite things to do mate if you listen to that that book and it's just like everything about it like how it was created the chances of it being created the chances that we're still here so that is another little one so just listen to this right i'll read it because otherwise i won't get it right consider the fact that for 3.8 billion years a period of time that's older than the earth's mountains rivers and oceans Every one of your forebearers on both sides of your families has been attractive enough to find a mate, healthy enough to reproduce, and sufficiently blessed by fate and circumstances to live long enough to do so. Not one of your pertinent ancestors was squashed, devoured, drowned, starved, stranded, stuck fast, uh, untimely wounded, or otherwise deflected from its life's quest of delivering a tiny charge of genetic material to the right partner at the right moment in the right order, 
to perpetuate the only possible sequence of hereditary combinations that could result eventually, astoundingly, and all too briefly, in you. Wow. You wow. sound a bit like, have you ever seen Jason Silver and the videos that he puts together? Yeah. He classes himself as an epiphanist, mm. I think, <laughs> or a futurist or something like that. Um, but yeah, that was excellent reading, yeah. mate. The chance... uh, maybe, maybe a little bit too intense for a bedtime story. Yeah. For 3.8 billion years, some sort of genetic material has been passed along in whatever amount to whatever people to come up with you. Like, and if anything was ever so slightly differently, it wouldn't be you. No. But any, any, and each of the um, each of those that like, reproductive um, each each ancestor you go back, they had like a one in four hundred quadrillion chance of being them. Yeah. So, so do you, them, yeah, multiply it out. It's just it's absolutely ridiculous. That you are you. Yeah, it's fucked, isn't it? Yeah, that it is, is mental. Crazy. Ali's been doing fact checks on everything you've been saying. That's <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, be prepared for that to continue through the whole podcast. <laughs> I had to do a really hard conversion of miles to kilometres. <laughs> oh. When you gave us the answer in miles. Yeah, why did you give it in miles? Why did I give it in miles? Horrible measurement. That's just tradition, isn't it? It's what we do in the UK. We don't give kilometres. They're much better, though, aren't they? Yeah. Even you think that. Even me, my dinosaur <laughs> hating ways, yeah. But he was in the, in the military, wasn't he? He was in the military. Yeah. Yeah. Standard my, school, Miles. Oh, yeah, we should ask him about his, his, his background, shouldn't we? What's our first question? Tell we... us a bit about your background. Greg, tell us a bit about your background, mate. <laughs> Not the background behind you. <laughs> But for anyone wondering, Greg has a wall full of LTV. No, 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 actually, no, what Greg does is Greg has a wall of Tom Morgan behind him. <laughs> yeah, this is my secret fanboy room. I, I thought I was just going to be on audio and it happens to be video, so now it's really embarrassing. <laughs> Don't worry, mate, we're not recording it, but so we'll probably take some screenshots. Um, all right, yeah, a bit of my background. So, um, least athletic of a pretty athletic family, I'd say. So, started kind of going to the gym about 15 sneaking off at lunchtime to like go to the gym in between school and that kind of stuff and I just fell in love with it, loved it. Uh, went to do my sport and exercise science degree at university which led absolutely nowhere and I'll be honest I was just a horrific student at the time. I just loved going out and didn't really like doing any work which wasn't a great combination. Sounds like a great um, student to me. Fell, fell into the kind of family business which is basically teaching. Everyone in our family is a, is a teacher, PE teacher pretty much, mum, dad, auntie, uncle, brothers, sisters, wife sister-in-law really uh, pretty much everyone a teacher so I did that for a little bit but then like I'd find myself at lunch times uh like looking at the CrossFit journal and stuff like that because at that time I was like I did I think maybe the second um certificate CrossFit certification in the UK like fucking 12 13 years ago something stupid like that a long long time ago um realized that I liked teaching people but I didn't like kids so kind of got out of teaching and went and joined the uh, Royal Air Force as a physical training instructor uh, carried on doing all my training stuff there for a bit and then realised I didn't like taking orders from people who were thick. So I kind of left that and moved on to um, being self-employed and then uh, found Chris at Lift the Bar who offered me a position to take up Head of Education, which I've kind of done for the last four years or so, I'd say. Um, and then we've kind of got our own PT course going on. So shout out to Becky who asked me to, who mentioned that she might I might be a good guest on here. So she's doing well on the course. So Hey, Bex, how you doing? So that's kind of me, a um, bit of a meandering road. Always loved fitness, just done slightly different roads, different tasks, I suppose, along the road, sorry. It's quite a story, to be fair. Yeah. Is it true you are a quad? I am, and actually, this is probably the best fact of them all. A quad I'm, the, I'm the world's tallest quad. That is a great fact. You're the world's tallest quad? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Elaborate. How is this not your leading fact of the day? Well, well, I say that I'm the tallest of the four, and I don't know any of the quads who are taller than me. So I'm the world's tallest quad. But yeah, we're actually the world's first double set of non-heterozygous twins. They're boy girl, boy girl twins. Wow, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. I meant was that is also. I'm pretty sure you, you told me once that um, your parents were hoping for one child. Yeah, well, so we've got an older sister who's 15 months older, 
and then they wanted a second and they got fourth more, basically. Ah, <laughs> oh, they must have been gutted. <laughs> yeah, because they tell a pretty cool story of like, um, obviously back in the day, the scans weren't that great. So it was kind of like just looking for heartbeats. And then obviously they put it on my mom and it was just kind of like, and like, okay, we think the machine's broken. Go and get another machine. Same thing happened again, got a third machine. And then they got like more and more doctors in the room. And eventually they were like, yeah, we think there's four in there. And it was like, oh, fuck. We'll deal with that. And my, to be fair, my, my dad's solution was to play about 120 games of football a year. Um, <laughs> Get out of the house <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, which I can't blame him, to be fair. It must have been an absolute nightmare. Fair play, mate. That's quality. Yeah. World's tallest quad. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great fact. Hates dinosaurs. Yeah. Loves world's tallest quad. <laughs> Gosh. I think Quite it's like the Tinder profile I could write on you right now. <laughs> well, if, if me and Carly ever go down the shitter, mate, I'll give you a ring. <laughs> <laughs> Might make this my hobby, writing Tinder profiles for all our uh, podcast guests. Yeah, that's a great idea, mate. We could, we, we, we could add it to um, our coaching uh, package. Get, get coached and get a free free copyright written by the uh, <laughs> your Tinder profile. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the key would be to get them a really good picture and then basically train them to look like that picture later on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we can just get Matt to design them one. Their hybrid hero avatar. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sick to be fair. Is he the one that does all the stuff in your uh, in the guides and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, that's sick to be fair. Call it. Matt is an excellent illustrator. Unbelievable at drawing things, isn't he? Yeah. The Hansen ebook looks so good, doesn't it? So mm. good. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm absolutely useless to all that stuff and I just love to be better at it you know like any kind of creative stuff like that I'm pathetic to anyone that's good at it like fair play to them there's real talent yeah sure yeah. I can draw a stick man badly <laughs> my talents <laughs> go and stop yeah. <laughs> oh it's so funny the other day I was at um, I was at my mum's house and she was like what would it be to throw away loads of, loads of like clothes and old bits and stuff and Danny was looking through one of my school books and she's like your writing is the same now, as it was when you were in year six. <laughs> I think mine's probably actually got worse, to be yeah. fair. Yours is, yours is worse writing. Yours is worse than Ali's. No way. I can't understand your writing at all. Oh, well, I did too quickly, didn't I? It just looks like someone's had a fit while they're <laughs> <laughs> like In school, you're taught to like join up, yeah. yeah. always write in lowercase, and you leave school, and you're like, I'm just going to put random capitals <laughs> in different places. Freestyle a little this bit. Is how, <laughs> this is how illiterate writes. <laughs> is that how you get creative? Right. Mm. <laughs> That's the way. Mine is shit, and I'm left-handed, so when you were taught at school, we used to have to write in ink, like proper ink, not like a bar or whatever. And I'd just be like, I wouldn't turn the page. I'd just be smudging shit and I was writing. And I was just like, this crap. Like, like, and it's just not got any better since then, really. So thank fuck for computers. Otherwise, I'd be unemployed. You must be the tallest left-handed quad, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if we keep adding parameters, I'll be somewhere where I'm doing all right. Like, definitely. <laughs> all right, Greg. Should we get into some nutrition, mate? Probably good. That's Probably good idea by now. All right, so can you give us a brief overview of what nutritional periodization is and um, why it's an important, why you think it's an important thing to consider? Yeah, cool. So I think um, one, of, one of my jobs with Lift the Bar is trying to take theory and ideas or whatever it might be and help people understand them in a way they've maybe not considered them before. So quite a lot of trainers consider, you know, uh, we've gone from this place in the industry or a lot of good personal trainers now, they don't just think about writing a session plan and make someone tired. They think about writing a long-term training plan of which it might have different phases and each phase has got different tools that might be appropriate within each phase. However, when it comes to diet and nutrition, people are still like very myopic, very kind of, oh, um, do if it fits your macros or do intermittent fasting or do whatever it is. And they're kind of like tools and people weren't really thinking too much about how to plan things out long-term. So if you look at all the diet literature, basically it gets to about six months of dieting and the vast majority of people end up returning back to similar weights that they had before because it's basically like saying, I'm going to keep adding weight on the bar linearly for the next six months. I'm going to keep doing that every training session. Obviously, at some point you can't keep doing that shit. So basically all I try to do with the course or this concept of nutritional periodization is say, right, even if you've got a long-term goal, that goal probably needs to be broken up into different phases with different goals within them. 
And then we can break up each phase of training, just like you would do with your actual, sorry, each phase of dieting, as you would do your your phase of um, physical training, if that makes sense. So just to give you a really quick example, let's say somebody comes to me and says, Greg, I really want to lose five stone. All right. So typically what most people would have done was go, okay, we'll put you in this calorie, calorie deficit and we'll keep helping you lose weight until you straight line, go down to the body weight you want. And then hopefully you know what you're doing and you'll just kind of carry on maintaining your body weight. But we know most people can't do that. They only want to diet for a certain amount of time. So we'll say, right, let's diet for six, eight, ten weeks, depending on how um, how big the deficit is. And then after that, we're going to go into a weight loss maintenance phase where we're going to practice living life, maintaining this weight. And then when you feel um, a little bit better, and I think we're going to maybe talk about diet fatigue later on, but when you feel a little bit better, then we might move back into a dieting phase. So that would be big picture. And then if we look at each individual phase of dieting itself, so that first weight loss phase, I'm thinking, am I going to be dieting for all six weeks? Am I going to have breaks during some of those weeks? Maybe it's because I'm just getting too hungry or I've got loads of people at work. And then even down to a daily basis, so we know that most people don't want to live the same Monday to Sunday. They want to kind of live a certain way Monday to Friday and they want to have a little bit more leniency on the weekend. So basically, um, can I set the diet up to make them feel most supported when they need it and have most flexibility when they need it, as opposed to this singular idea of you've got one diet and that's going to fit all situations regardless of the phase of dieting, the week of dieting, the day of dieting and all that kind of thing. So a bit of a long rambling answer there, gents, but hopefully there's something to uh, pick apart and it makes a bit of sense. No, that's perfect, mate. It does. It makes perfect sense, actually. Um, you explained that really, really nicely. There's um, <clears throat> a little bit of, um, I can't remember, I read this ages ago, but there's uh, two thirds of dieters end up fatter within um, three years. So literally, if you want to be leaner, you're better off. The stats say you're better off not dieting in the first place because you will be better. Evidence-based. Like, like none of it, if you look at all of it. So I think you're probably talking to Ed the Anderson paper. I think it was like 2000, 2001, something Mm -hmm. like that. That basically showed, yeah, within three years, the vast majority of dieters have come back to their regular weight and more. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things like the National Weight Loss Registry are an exception to that, and we kind of looked to them as to how we could do things long term to help people keep the weight off. Um, but the, the, the main, the, the big problem with it as well is, well, there's loads of problems. But one of them is that we've kind of been, as personal trainer, personal trainers, we've been shoehorned into weight loss experts, and actually physical activity is pretty crap for uh, creating fat loss. So I think it's roughly, if you just start a weight loss intervention without any dietary intervention, on average, you'll lose about 3% of your body weight. So obviously, it's going to do very little. Um, But then also, we know the body, calories in, calories out, is very dynamic. The body has got some tools in its arsenal to kind of put the handbrake on you burning less calories, so you slow down that calorie deficit. But for the vast majority of people, the reason they return back to their weight is not because they've their metabolism's crashed or metabolic adaptation, damage, whatever stupid term someone's going to use, it's because they've started eating more again. So actually, the key to long-term success when it comes to weight loss and weight loss maintenance is helping people continue to eat less calories, basically. And, and then we promote exercise for all the amazing things that it can do outside of weight loss, all the stuff that you guys kind of um, you know talk about and promote. So that, that's the big one. So when you start to look at that research, you go, right, well, if it comes down to dietary adherence, that's why we probably need more than just Here's your diet. Keep sticking at it. Oh, I know you're not doing too well, but keep digging in. You know, keep trying. Well, obviously, you can do that so many times before people just give up, and that's one of the big problems where we get that stat that you just talked about, Ali. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Um, yeah, the way you describe that is, it does make people always talk about trying to fit a diet to a person, <clears throat> and what they try and do is fit a diet to a person, and that is literally yeah. like, it's that's that that is exactly what you're saying is just a terrible idea you're trying to find a way that they can eat as few calories as they can maintain for a period of time that allows them to sort of live a life that they don't, don't mind living for a period and then learn how to live at that new body weight and like you said yeah. that might be monday to friday they do some intermittent fasting saturday sunday they have a bit more freedom around their eating so that that's that um, day-to-day cycle and then over the month you might have like a two or three day diet break and over the every six weeks they've actually got like a two or a two or three week diet break or whatever it is that's absolutely it and so um i wrote a piece about four years ago now called the nutritional tracking continuum and that's basically different ways that you can use on a daily basis to um kind of structure your diet a little bit but that's literally just a tool and then our job as if we're going to help 
give people nutrition advice or you're looking for your own um, nutritional advice to help yourself, it's, a, it's literally a case of becoming a creative problem solver. So what problems do people have and then what, how can I apply whatever tool I've got to help them in that situation? So even simple things like saying, right, I, you know, um, I'm supposed to be doing this if, if it fits your macros thing, but in the evenings I'm starving hungry or I just know that food's in the fridge. Okay, so what can we do? We can look at lower calorie options. We can look at removing it from the house. We can look at backloading your calories. We can look at giving you some fun calories to track. So maybe you don't have to track everything, but the only thing you track is the amount of junk food you eat and you've got 300 calories a day. I don't know. There's, there's no perfect answer for all this stuff. It's literally like, what's your problem? What solutions can we come up with? And then we'll implement it. So I think one of the things people think when they first start to hear this is, sounds a bit complicated, Greg. You know, we've got phases of dieting. We've got different weeks where we're doing different things, different days where we're doing different things. Don't make it any more complicated than it needs to be, but oftentimes it needs to be a little bit more tailored to the individual than just, here's your high, low, and medium calorie days. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you giving them those days? How does it fit their lifestyle? If I've got a client who works away every fifth week and they get really stressed about stuff, or maybe it's a case of me helping them choose better foods when they're away, but also just saying, hey, we're going to take a diet break in those weeks, and that's going to help manage diet fatigue, which we'll talk about in a second. So when you come back in, you can diet again. Basically, how can we just set people up for success regardless of the, the phase they're in? And knowing that you can't just constantly restrict yourself in terms of calories and just think it's going to continue to happen forever because at some point people would get to that kind of place where they're like, this is shit, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, and so the analogy I'll use, I often use, is that the if helping people think of things as a dimmer switch and not an on-off switch. Yeah. So, for example, if I'm in a dieting phase, I'm turning things up high, I'm working really hard, I don't mind being a little bit fatigued, I don't mind a little bit being a bit hungry because weight's coming off. But when that gets a little bit too much, we're going to turn the dial down We're going to help you live life a little bit easier. We're going to take some of that restraint away from you so you can recharge your batteries and then you can go again. So I think that's a really important thing. If most people take one thing away from it, if they're not that happy with the dieting thing, it's not an on-off switch. It's it's a dimmer switch that we turn up or down. Yeah, that's a great way of um, trying to quantify exactly. Because everyone you hear, everyone seems to think they're an all-or-nothing kind of person. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm either on it or I'm off it. And it's like, (laughs) that is just a great way of saying, do you know what? You're never really probably ever fully on it, and likewise, you're never really properly fully off it. And if you build that mentality into the way you think, it's going to make your life so much harder than if you just turn it up a little bit, turn it down a little bit, depending on what's going on in the rest of your life. 100%. And, and there's, there's two big problems with that as well. I think it's because oftentimes people think that the weight loss phase is a diet full stop mm-hmm. but actually only one phase of a diet right so actually anyone that comes to me and we talk about weight loss the most important thing we probably talk about is what happens when that weight loss phase ends you know what and we talk about there is a maintenance phase and that's actually part of the process so it's no longer on and off it's mm-hmm. that's still part of the process there's still stuff we're focusing on but if all you ever know how to lose weight is like literally just you know the sawdust diet or whatever you're, you're going to do mm-hmm. and then you get to the next phase like i don't want to keep eating sawdust now what do i do i've got no tools in my toolbox <laughs> you're absolutely fucked right so that's one thing and then also it's that ability if you think of that dimmer switch again let's say we've had people that um have been tracking calories for ages because a lot of some people like to do it some people don't okay i'll, I'll work with the person find what they like but then you're like well you shouldn't really have to track for the rest of your life some people might go, oh, stop tracking. But for, for a lot of individuals, that'll cause anxiety because that's their, like tracking's their safety blanket. So again, we take that idea of a dimmer switch to find what someone's comfortable with. Okay, if you're not tra- comfortable with removing all tracking, what about removing tracking for one day? So you track for six days, one day a week you don't track. And then after a certain amount of time, we don't track for two days. And after a certain amount of time, we don't track for three days. But if that's too much for somebody, okay, can you not track for breakfast on a Monday? because you know what you have on a Monday anyway. Yeah, all right, now can you do breakfast on a Monday, Tuesday? And then you build it in that way. So we can just turn whatever whatever tools that person's been using, we can just turn those up and down depending on the, the phase that they're in as well. So that helps to get over that little idea of I'm all or I'm nothing. And we'll just show them there's kind of better and worse for that for the, for the stage that they're in, but there's not on or off. And I think that's the big problem with you know, detox teas or whatever it is. If that's if, if all you know in a in a weight loss plan is the weight loss phase, you're missing out a huge part of it, which is the weight loss maintenance phase. Yeah, they're they're all excellent points. The the the, the thing is, what you're going through there is exactly what you get out of working with a coach, because someone can literally look at it from a um, from like an objective manner and say, okay, can we try this? Can we try that? But if you're just like someone that's looking after all their own nutrition 
it makes being so objective just like really, 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 really hard. So how can someone like who's not got a coach um, try and implement some of these strategies? Um, yeah, do you know what I'm trying to say? Without, um, without, without the sort of like having the, we will track the, the continuum, um, we will link it below, but do you know what I mean? How can, how, what, they need to find out a way that they can eat um, that aligns with their goals, but isn't really stressful. And that's quite hard to do without a coach, and obviously not everyone can afford to have a coach. So what do you reckon is some ways that they could look at their sort of like their nutritional intake and, and, and find some ways to, to implement some of those strategies themselves? <laughs> that is a hard one as well, right? Because there's a, there's a number of issues with that. Um, firstly, when you're basically starving yourself to some regard, you know, you could put yourself in a caloric deficit, it's very hard to be objective with yourself. And then obviously people have very subjective feelings on hunger and um, energy and mood and the scale and how they're feeling. And then they make irrational decisions because the scale's not moving all that kind of stuff. So that's very hard. And then also we know when it comes to food intakes that with, for a lot of people, they will swear blind that they're only eating a certain amount of calories or just eating a certain way, but it's subconscious overeating, right? It's, they're unknowingly non-adherent. And we know that actually happens in the, the kind of brain structures that are below conscious reasoning. That's where it is very, very hard. So I think with, with people that are going to um, track or kind of coach themselves, you do have to have some sort of objective markers that you're going to use. So uh, to start off with, it is kind of tracking stuff, I suppose, tracking scale weight, seeing how it goes up and down, tracking your hunger, tracking your mood and your energy, and then having to make some, some smaller changes up and down based on that. But for most people, if you can identify the low-hanging fruit, the kind of rate limiter, the thing that stops you um, – you know, puts you in that caloric surplus or stops you, you know, takes you out of your deficit. If you can identify that and then you can try and think literally just as a problem solver, don't think of it in terms in scientific terms or that kind of stuff. Just think there's something that I'm doing that makes me eat more calories than I want to eat at this current time. What would be some of the simplest things that I could do to stop myself from doing that? Does that make so you know simple things like okay, if there's a if there's a birthday in the office and someone's always bringing in cake, two options. One, you always say no which is quite hard, or you have the cake and you have like an if-then strategy. If I eat cake at lunch, then I will remove the carbohydrates from my tea. Something as simple as that might give them a little solution to help them deal with the, the different situations. So um, I would say it's a very difficult thing to do when you're on your own, and it is worth trying to invest in a coach if you can. Um, and it, it, if you can't, then it's a case of trying to identify the most um, risky or the things that are limiting your progress the most. What's causing you to overeat or you're going to remove? And then from there, you can look to try and come up with some creative problem solving. And, and, and the one thing I would say with that as well is also try and give yourself a bit of a break. Know that willpower is a limited resource. You can't just um, will your way to it. No matter what people say, your physiology will fight you. So at some point, it's that case of step, taking a step back um, knowing that not all the time should be a dieting phase. So if you are banging your head against the wall, not making any progress, it might be the best thing to step back, stop, you know, increase your training capacity a little bit, enjoy all that kind of stuff. And then when you're feeling better again, step back in. But it is, that's a really tough question. And I wish I had a better answer because if we did, we'd probably help a lot of people. But unfortunately, I'm not clever enough. No, I think that was an excellent answer, mate. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. I think that uh, leads really, really nicely um, into what, um, what diet fatigue is. So could you delve into a little bit about, about that, please, buddy? Yeah, sure. So this goes into this idea that um, as we start creating a calorie, sorry, calorie deficit and we start losing weight, um, your body will naturally fight you in a number of ways, basically, because from an evolutionary standpoint, if it was so easy just to create a 500 calorie deficit and you just continue to lose weight, then that rambling story I said about 3.8 billion years of us following through our, um, our forebearers wouldn't have happened because we'd have died out. So your, your body has a number of ways, normally by lowering energy expenditure a little bit, but the big one is increasing your hunger um, quite rapidly. So based on some studies, uh, they reckon that for every one kilogram of body weight you lose, you increase your appetite by roughly 100 calories per day. So as you start to um, lose weight, let's say you lose five kilos, you lose about 20 to 30 calories of um, energy expenditure. So you're about 150 calories less off in terms of what you're burning. But now you are about 500 calories more hungry. So we create this big gap between, you know, calories that you're burning is coming down. Your desired um, energy intake is going up. And so the, the 
bigger the gap between those two, the larger the amount of effort it takes to maintain your current intake. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, 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 definitely. Cool. So, and we, we know, doesn't matter what the diet is, in the early phases of dieting, most people can stick to anything, right? They're, they're motivated enough for a couple of weeks or whatever, and they'll stick to it. But over time, this energy gap between what you want to eat and, and the amount of calories that you're expending will basically take a toll on you and it will build up a fatigue in that you just don't want to keep doing this dieting thing. You're hungry, you're tired, maybe you're lethargic, you want to go out with friends and enjoy more calories depending on whatever it is that you're doing. And it comes to a certain point where you become less adherent to your diet. You're no longer able to stick to your diet in the same way that you could on day one. So think of day one of a diet. If I said to everyone listening now, we're going to do the start of your diet and you're only going to have 500 calories a day. Day one, we could probably all do it. Day two starts getting a bit harder. Day three, even more difficult because our diet fatigue is starting to build. Like I said, the rate this will build will depend on the size of your deficit. But what this basically means is that we cannot continue to um, diet in a linear manner with the same size deficit and all those kind of things before we need to actually take a step back and say, hey, we need a little bit of time to recover from all this before we can push hard again. And a really easy parallel to this is training. If we got everybody training six days a week really, really hard, uh, after a certain amount of time, some fatigue would build up. Um, you know, general fatigue, we wouldn't be able to train as hard as we wanted to. We'd be going in the gym, we wouldn't be lifting weights well, you know, we'd maybe not be uh, the same aerobic level. And so we'd need to take basically a deload. We'd need to take a time of less intense training to allow us to recover. So then when we go back into the next training block, we're ready again. And it's the same thing with your diet. After a certain point, you get fed up of being restricted, being tired, being hungry, whatever we want to um, think of it as. And we no longer have the ability to stick to our diet, even if we really, really want to. And that we need to be able to take a, a nutritional deload, if that makes sense. How long does it take to sort of normalize, like you say, if you lose five kilos or like a kilo is 100 calories, more hungry you are? How long would that take generally for someone who went into a sort of a maintenance phase to kind of normalize back to where you roughly expect it to be? I don't think there's a hard and fast answer with that, Tom. I think if we look at things like the biggest loser where people have lost huge amounts of weight, actually it doesn't really go back. But the main thing to say with that is that those people that have kept weight off after something like the biggest loser, they're still probably hungry. They're still not burning as many calories as somebody who's never lost weight, but they've just found behaviors that allow them to stick to their, their energy requirements still. Yeah. So, you know, things like the, the, these kind of energy gaps that are created, um, for people who've lost large amounts of weight, they're probably going to be there until they go back to the weight they were before. But, for, uh, but you can still manage them. So, you know, it, it's about managing behaviors, not necessarily adaptations. But for somebody who's, I don't know, like you guys, you know, let's say you want to get super lean and you're obviously going to be a bit hungry for a little bit and maybe a little bit lethargic right towards the end. It's either going to be as soon as you get back to a decent level of body fat or, you know, you can get enough calories within the system to maintain what you're doing. So it's a bit of a, there's no really hard and fast answers with that, I'm afraid. But we should know really for most people, if they're within... Know, a decent level of body fat, it shouldn't be a, a huge thing. So it's not like, you know, if I'm 20 kilos overweight and I lose five kilos, that I should be absolutely ravenous all the time and I'm burning no calories whatsoever. That's not the case. Those those adaptations are fairly small. There is a limit to them. Um, but long term, for people that have been reduced obese or lost more than 10% of their body weight, it looks like a lot of those adaptations are um, maintained. But we just help people, if you, again, look at the National Weight Loss Registry in America, people that have lost like 30 pounds and kept off for years, they just find behaviors that allow them to manage that hunger and that energy expenditure. So they do slightly more exercise, the slightly more filling foods, voluminous foods, protein, all that kind of stuff that allows them to manage it. So you're not a, a prisoner to those mm -hmm. um, adaptations, if that makes sense. I, th I think that's probably where like actually really enjoying training is is a massive part of the whole thing like so training doesn't tend to t like make a massive dent or like create a massive calorie deficit for most people but if you can get them to the point where they're actually pretty strong they've got like decent level of conditioning they've got the capacity to be able to burn more calories in particular they enjoy doing stuff like going for a run going for a cycle like d doing stuff that does burn more calories they're then in a much better position to be able to maintain going forwards off the back of a dieting phase I, th I think that's sort of like the perspective we kind of take on a lot of the sort of the coaching that we do is we want it to be as enjoyable as possible so people whether they're in a dieting phase whether they're in maintenance whether they're trying to build muscle whatever it is they're like they enjoy the training throughout and obviously we, we know that when you're in a deficit it's not quite as it's not quite as fun it's harder but 
if you if you enjoy it throughout and you build that capacity, then you've got the kind of like you said, you've got those behaviors, you've got those kind of tools in the bag to be able to like maintain it long term. Massively. So it's quite funny actually though, if you look at the research, so weight uh, exercise isn't great for weight loss, but it is actually quite strongly linked to weight loss maintenance. Mm -hmm. So helping people to maintain their weight loss after they've lost it. And there's a number of reasons I think that might be. So one of them is kind of like the energy flux model. So basically people that exercise are better able to manage their energy intake to match their exercise levels than people who are a little bit more of a sedentary. Um, and so I, I posted a video a while back called like the um, exercise um, training paradox in terms of most people, personal trainers, would actually do amazingly well, I think, in my opinion, by when they first get somebody in for training, if we understand that actually the training is really bad for or not a very good tool for uh, weight loss, and I always love an analogy, and the analogy I give is um, selling exercise for weight loss is like buying an iPhone for a, a paperweight. It can do the job, but it, it, it's quite limited. It's just far more powerful for a million other things, right? It's, it's fucking incredible, but it's just not great for weight loss. But as a personal trainer, if I can get somebody in when they first come in and take up a little of their motivation from training so they can really focus it towards their diet, A, they're going to get better results because they've got more, you know, they're creating a bit bigger deficit for their nutrition. But then that gives me time to then start helping them fall in love with the process of exercise so then long-term they stick with it. And then they see all those amazing benefits that you'll have seen with your clients where they go, no, I can pick things up now. I've got less ache. I've got more energy. And they stick, in, they stick to this exercise thing long term, which actually helps them with their weight loss maintenance, as opposed to what the industry norm is sometimes. Is they go, oh, you want to lose weight? Well, we'll do that through exercise. We'll beast the fuck out of you. And we'll burn loads of calories with these battle ropes and these box jumps. And guess what that does? Well, we know that most people will probably go back and do less exercise, sorry, less movement for the rest of the day. So their 23-hour or the 23-hour energy expenditure will come down. They'll compensate by eating more, and then they'll getting a pretty shitty result. So actually, yeah, one of the best things we can do as personal trainers from the off, if somebody's goal is weight loss, is actually make the training as fun, as enjoyable as possible, because A, they've got more motivation to do their diet or more willpower left, depletion of the ego, and then long-term, they're doing this exercise thing which helps keep weight off. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you, mate. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um, like talking about it in terms of thinking of it, is really good for weight loss maintenance just sort of extends it it's like another phase of the diet so it's really important that you've built that love of exercise beforehand because then as you move into the like maintenance phase it's still a tool that is part of the diet because at that point you're then using it as as a tool for weight loss maintenance 100 percent. like because otherwise like i said so what happens people come in there the tra trainer gives them the trademarked sawdust diet makes them do the kettlebell swings, makes them do the, the the battle ropes and all the kind of like lactic acid type stuff that might get a little bit of a better energy expenditure. We'll see. Um, and they kind of lose some weight, but then if we get these kind of adaptations, less neat, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, they're less walking around, they're a little bit more hungry. They tend to reward themselves with a little bit more food after exercise. Subconsciously, it's called a license to eat. And then they stop losing weight and they go, well, I'm not doing this fucking exercise thing that I hate if I'm not losing weight because I'm only doing it for that and I don't get that anyway. So fuck this shit, I'm off. Whereas if we could have them fall in love with it from those first six weeks, we're onto a far better winner for everyone's long-term health, your business and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's helping them fall in love with exercise because long-term, it's a big part of the puzzle massively. So you mentioned using diet breaks and some other tools. Um like nutritional periodizational tools. So how proactive are you in planning using them or are you fairly reactive, like you wait for a client's weight loss to stall or for that diet fatigue to build up and then you start employing some of these tools? Yeah, so that's really cool. So um, when we look at diet breaks, you can be quite rigid and there's things like the Matador study, for example, that looked at two weeks caloric restriction, two weeks maintenance, two weeks caloric restriction. Or you can do it in a little bit more reactive manner. So for me personally, I'd rather say, you know, um, when's like really hectic at work or when's really hectic with the kids or when, when are you struggling the most? So when have you got less capacity to focus on your diet or maybe you're away on holiday? Maybe that's a great time to be um, have a diet break. So we can be proactive both in a structured manner or slightly more um, a looser manner based on their, their schedule. Or we can be a little bit more think of training again more auto-regulatory in terms of saying look i know we planned on doing this thing but you you, you seem fatigued you seem quite tired how about bringing calories up for a week and see how we feel 
And I think that that only really works when we look at diet breaks and look at the, some of the first studies from like wing and stuff like that is, um, especially if someone's new to it, they'll only really accept it if they know it's going to happen um, before it does, if that makes sense. So if I've got somebody new and they've always been used to dieting and I talk about this thing like a diet break, they need to know that that's already part of the plan that's structured in. However, when people get a little bit um, further down the line and they understand the process, then they get a little bit better at going, actually, Greg, I think now's a good time to probably take a diet break. I'm feeling this way. You know, well, I felt this way before, a bit tired. I'm not really sticking to my plan the way I was. Might be a good idea to take a diet break. But um, I think this, this can all be cleared up with a lot of people if it's front-loaded. So you say to them, you know, in this weight loss phase, this is how you're going to feel. Um, that we'll get to a certain point when you know you don't want to do this thing and we can either stop the phase or we can take a diet break bring your calories back up in whichever way we so choose and then we can push on from there so they know it's going to happen does that make sense yeah absolutely mate cool very concise yeah that was an excellent answer that's <laughs> <laughs> class mate honestly really really I mean, really I mean that, that's that's thinking of it um and this is kind of a curse of knowledge, right? Because I know what I'm trying to explain. It's already in my head, but for somebody listening, it might be a bit more difficult. But we can basically do that. I'm thinking there on a week level, right? So let's say it's a six-week block of dieting. And I could literally say to someone, we're going to diet for six weeks. Or I might say to someone, we're going to diet for somewhere between six and ten weeks, depending on how you're feeling. And when we need to, we'll take a diet break. So that's on, on, on a weekly basis. But then if we think on a daily basis, you can do something like a refeed or you can borrow calories or you can change the approach based on how they're feeling. And again, that can be done um, in a very structured way. So on Tuesdays, I, you know, you might be like, well, on Tuesdays, I coach clients from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Therefore, that might be a really good day just to do something really simple with my nutrition. However, on other days when I'm in the office and doing more work, I'm really bored, I might do something else for my nutrition. So on a daily basis, we can do things differently. On a weekly basis, we can do things differently. On a monthly basis, we can do things differently. But it's all just creative problem solving, right? Some people might go, Greg, too complicated. I just want the same intake every day of the week, the same approach. And that's absolutely fine for them. So um, obviously your, um, your, your diet breaks actually create... Um physiological changes in, in terms of um, what what you can achieve um, energy expenditure-wise day-to-day. Um, are those refeeds doing anything like that, or are they just for psychological benefits? Yeah, cool. So um, if we think of diet breaks as deload weeks, as we said in training, if we think of our refeed days, so single or multiple days of basically back up to maintenance calories, that's a little bit like a light day of training, an active recovery day. That's the way I think of it, right? You can train hard, you can push hard on certain calorie deficits, but you need certain um, days where you're training a little bit easier. Same thing with our diet. And when you start thinking of it in this regard, I'm like, why the fuck did we think that everyone could just diet or do the same thing all the time? You're like, we don't do this physiologically with anything else. Why why diet? But to answer your question, Ali, um, from a lot of the research has shown when we do like, these kind of higher refeeds, the energy expenditure that was increased by about 7%, but the amount of calories you've had to kind of mm-hmm. obviously create that kind of refeed kind of negates the extra 7% increase. So for a lot of people, just a very short refeed, one to two days, maybe three days, that will probably be far more of a psychological benefit than it will be a physiological benefit. But that's not to say that, you know, we refill glycogen stores so they can go train hard again. Just a psychological release of going having some more food, less restriction. That might, you know, lower cortisol a little bit, so they feel a little better. They sleep a little bit better. They train a little bit better. So it could definitely get some, some physiological benefits, but I still think the the research is saying that most of them are psychological benefits. But they're they're very much interlinked, right? We can't just pull them apart and say that they're, they're separate. Absolutely, yeah, definitely, mate. For sure. But yeah, the the, the way you've broken all that, mate, is just um, genius, really. You're a boss. Well done. Uh, I appreciate it, mate. But, um, like, it was funny because I was, <clears throat> I kind of had this idea and I was thinking, like, how do we try and support people on, like, from every level, right? From watching, watching main goal, how do we break it up and into all the individual days? Uh, and it was basically chatting to Danny Lennon and he had similar kind of thought processes. And then when you, just, I'm lucky, right? Because I get paid by Lift the Bar to sit down and think of this stuff. Whereas everyone else is going and doing actual jobs, so like <laughs> I, I get I get time to sit down, dig into some of the research, and start trying to extrapolate or box up some of my thoughts to make it a little bit easier for people. And I really hope for trainers or people who train themselves now are listening, going, "Okay, I get the idea of having kind of like recovery days or easier days. I get the idea of having deloads. That makes sense. I get the idea of you know some phases of strength, some phases of more aerobic work, and it'd be the same thing with our diet." So. 
yeah, I, it, it ends up coming sounding like I'm quite clever, but it's just I've had more time to think about it really than anyone else. <laughs> that kind of thing where, you know, when they say about monkeys, if monkeys just typed, eventually they could randomly come up with Shakespeare. That's kind of what I'm like. I just, no one's 99 shit ideas that I've had. They just get to talk about the one good idea that you I've know, had. That, so. that, that takes into account that the monkeys will type forever. You've only had a very finite set, <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah. set of years to come up with a really genius strategy. So you've done a yeah. good job, mate. You're better than a monkey anyway. That's good on the TV. Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, you could have you, you you written it. It could just be that one time that the monkey just immediately banged out William yeah. and Juliet. Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should probably exactly. say that. The, the reason we got Greg on wasn't just because Becky told us to. <laughs> He's also got great biceps. That yeah. was the main drive. Oh, that yeah. was the question, <laughs> Greg, how did you build such phenomenal biceps? Genuinely, just have to shit everything else and then your arms look decent. Like, that's the way to do it. Look good by comparison. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Your arms that's are probably going to be out the, out the most in a t-shirt. So you spend all your time making those look jacked, and then everyone will just think you're jacked. Yeah, that's it. People it's, it. it's, it's one of those weird anomalies. So, uh, kind of a half decent point to come out of this. Whenever we look at research, we always talk about means, and like there are obviously very big individual differences. And so, for example, my arms probably get three or four sets a week at most, but I get like the most sore. I get the most pump out of doing them. I get like the most training response compared to like other body parts. I just don't get them. So people will look at that outlier and go, oh, how do you get better than X, Y, and Z? It's like, don't know. Don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> like like everyone, everyone's just got different shit that's they're slightly better at than others. Yeah. Now you should have packaged that up, mate. The painted Greg Slater bicep method. <laughs> Only do three sets of arms a week. <laughs> yeah. Mate, I don't think anyone will buy it, but fuck it. I'll have a go. <laughs> no, just, just sit down for the next four years. <laughs> and try just to... wheelchair himself around, mate. Get triceps in that as well. <laughs> and just come up with the best bicep training plan. Um, that would probably be too tricep, mate. You'll have to like, set ropes up through your house so you can like pull yourself. Like <laughs> 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 it. Is there anything else you want to go through? I'm trying to think of that. You could just like... Go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you just go backwards. It's sort of like Ali's imagining you wheeling backwards around your house for the next few years. Yeah, backwards is flexible. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> Might sound, not be the most enjoyable existence. Yeah, the sound effects are essential. Yeah, fair play, mate. No, that was quality. Thank you so much for your time. It was very useful. no worries. If you could give one piece of advice to someone listening. What would it be? Um, yeah, so uh, this is the kind of answer, right? I reckon seven years ago, I'd have just hated myself for giving because I, I just like, why are you giving that? It's like everyone says that kind of shit, but that, that piece of having having a bit of gratitude like every single day, and there's like a load of things. I think like I've got a nine-month-old son now, and that changes you a lot. But a uh, really easy example really bad toothache couldn't sleep every single night and all i gave a shit about was like getting rid of this toothache and then like now i haven't got it it'd be easy to forget about how bad it was but actually you're just thinking i go shit i ain't got toothache or no my chocolate <laughs> me. my knees my knees on the mend right and i'm getting there but i was so uh blase about my health you know being fully healthy being able to do what the hell i wanted when i was healthy and only when you get injured do you go oh shit how cool was it when actually i could do everything i wanted to do and I think in a physical capacity, that's massive because there will become a day when we can't do those things that we decide not to do now. They're the choice that we take in out of our hands. So having that kind of gratitude that you are healthy enough to go make the choice to go and work out and do the things that you want to do is absolutely massive, actually. And I think if, if we all did that, and you know, we're all focused on what's coming next or what's the next thing. If we can all just stop and uh, smell the flowers a little bit, I think we'd all be a little bit happier. Yeah, definitely. Do you actually... Um have a sort of formal way of doing that? Do you do like a gratitude diary or do you just try and make an effort to sort of appreciate things day to day? Yeah, yeah, like, no, I don't really have a, a, I don't know, I think that's a bit stale, a bit, you know, sterile to be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to sit down and really, just every now and again, just try and sit down and think, wow, this is, no, I'm pretty cool. Like I've got a, like a wife I love, I've got a kid I love, I've got a job I really enjoy, I'm healthy. And just, you know, and it, it might be something as simple as, you know, you did a set or an exercise and you just, you knack it, you finish your workout on the floor, you're like, wow, uh, that was a bit shit, but also I'm pretty lucky to be able to have done that. Do you know what I mean? Just try and stop it and, and just every now and again catch yourself, even, you know, just, just, just to think, and this is a little bit of the negative side of it, I suppose, that makes you think of it, but, um, 
you know, I, I'm a, like we were saying in the intro, there's, there's five of us siblings, everyone's kind of happily married and all that kind of stuff. But on average, at least three of us will probably get divorced, right? At this current stage, we're in this great place where we can all meet up at weekends and we can have family meals and all that kind of stuff. At some point, statistically, there's a very good chance that that won't happen uh, and, and you'll lose parents and all that kind of thing. So it's just trying to take stock of how good you've got it uh, and enjoying it a little bit, I think. And like I said, I think if we all did that, it'd be pretty sick. Yeah, that's last minute. Yeah, it's class. Cool. I think the world would be a much better place if everyone just like appreciated what they actually had got. But the, the society we live in, we don't, do we? We're all mm. almost programmed to look at somebody who's got this other lifestyle and we look at what we don't have as opposed to what we do have. Yeah. Uh, and I just think that that's why I really like what you guys, you know, do. You kind of promote just community, enjoying yourself, you know, the promote the positive things without having to go and like shit on other people or what other people are doing. It's all about you and your connections and where you're living your life and I think that's if more people did that so that's uh, no, I know this is your podcast but like that's the thing that you guys do so amazingly well is like you celebrate the the, the the gateway that physicality has to everything else like community like going and living your life and visiting places all that kind of stuff as opposed to just an exercise in the gym and I think that's just fucking so cool so the more people that can get on the uh, the hybrid bandwagon the better no, thanks, mate. Oh, that's lush. Thank Don't you so much. Give me two words, mate. Very, very cleverly. <laughs> no dramas. My pleasure. It's not a particularly hard to do. But... <laughs> no, that's lush. Thank you so much, mate. Yeah. And my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for today, mate. Yeah. Quality. It's been excellent. That sets it up in a really nice way, mate. So thank you ever so much, Greg. You've been an absolute boss. No worries. Thank we started you, off as Hollywood Bill Dinosaur comment, but I think we pulled it back. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> did, actually. Just, uh, I mean, you've already been through it, but just let people know where they can find more about your stuff. Uh, yeah, so um, lift the bar. Lift the bar. Com. Two week free trial. You can come and literally do the whole course. Not do it within thirteen days. Don't pay us a penny. Um, but I'm on. I'm on Instagram badly. I'm not. On, I'm very intermittent on it. But Greg with a double G underscore LTB. If you've got any questions on anything that you've listened to today and you want a bit of help, just drop me a line. I'm happy to help. Thanks, mate. Cool. We'll link them below as well. Excellent. Sweet. If you could also, by the way, um, send us the link to that. Uh, okay, that you mentioned, and we'll link that below as well. Yeah, will do, gents. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Thanks very much, brother. Cheers, mate. Yeah, bye-bye, bye-bye.